Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Uh, and today we'll be joined by Professor Monica Black, who is the author of A Demon Haunted Land, Witches, Wonder Doctors, and the Ghosts of the Past in Post-World War II Germany, published by Metropolitan Books and Henry Holt in 2020. Welcome, Monica, to our podcast today. Oh, Stephen, thank you so much. I'm I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you. So a little bit about Monica Black. I'm, I'm a, a great fan of her work and especially her first book. Monica Black is a historian of modern Europe. Her research focuses on the cultural and social history of Germany with an emphasis on the era of the world wars and the decades immediately after 1949. Since 2010, she has been associate professor of history at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Her first book, which was published with Cambridge University Press in 2010, was called Death in Berlin, From Weimar to Divided Germany. Professor Black is the editor since 2019 of the journal Central European History. So uh, I'm really happy to, to have this podcast today, which, which we'll have in new, for New Books Network. Monica has also been a podcaster for our network since many years back. I want to start with a question about your characters in the book, and I think our audience would like to know your stage for German history. So could you talk about these witches and wonder doctors, and maybe the third character, the German past? That's an interesting way of putting it. That's a very interesting kind of, of framing of a question, I think. So I think that... The German, the the German past in the in the in the in the years immediately following the Second World War, or at least German society in those years, is certainly a character in this book. In my opinion, that's the main character in the book. There are some other characters who populate the pages of the book, through whom or through whose experiences and through whose deeds I tell a story about. Um, what the sort of psychological, social psychological and emotional and I like to say spiritual landscape of Germany looked like in the years after Germany's defeat in the Second World War and in the wake of the revelations of the Holocaust and uh, German war crimes during the Second World War and in the wake also of Germany's occupation by the Allies and the procedures of denazification. So a couple of the characters that you're referring to, I mean, some of the main characters in the book, if you will, are in particular a man whose name was Bruno Groning, who was a what in, in, an, in a U.S. American context might be referred to as a faith healer, although I would say that Groning was not a faith healer. Um, because I think that in the American context implies something quite different to what Groening actually re- represented. 
Groening was um, not an evangelist. So in the United States context, we would think about uh, a faith healer being someone who evangelizes groups of people or individuals to bring them to God in order that they can be spiritually healed and hopefully at the same time physically healed. Groening talked about God from time to time, but he seems to have had um, a great deal of success in treating people suffering from all kinds of different maladies in the wake of the war, Mm -hmm. uh, merely by being in their presence. So he was not so much a person who um, addressed crowds with a sort of, um, with preaching. It was more that he sort of um, seemed to provide a kind of um, a spiritual focus for a lot of people that had some um, curative, salubrious qualities. So he's one of the main characters in my book. Another character is another healer um, who in some ways probably bore some similarities. Certainly people at the time thought they bore some similarities to each other. A man named Valdemar Aberling, who touches off a, um, in a, in a small village in, in, in Northwest Germany, uh, in a region called Dittmarschen. He, he touches off a, um, a, a kind of witch scare in a local community. Mm-hmm. And so he's a, he's a, he's a second, um, character and there are others too, but I think those are two of the, those are two of the most um, of the of the figures in the book about whom I um, yeah. or on whom I spend the most time. I would say that's that's a great place to start, and and I'll come back to the witches and we'll weave in the past. Um, I I'm, I get the impression that you stumbled into a, a wealth of sources with Gruning. Could you tell us where you found some of these materials in newspapers and letters and really across the landscape, not just in archives, but where, where did you find sources for the book? Well, I began, I mean, the first place that I ran across these topics, let's say, was when I was doing some work in the, um, in the, what we all call the Stabi in Berlin, in the, in the Staatsbibliothek, the big state library there. There are two branches. I was in the branch that used to sit in the former East Berlin, which has this beautiful, I always describe this because it's so memorable to me. Um, there's this uh, beautiful reading room there, with beautiful wood-lined walls. And I was sitting and I don't remember where I saw it, but I, I, I ran across a reference in a footnote to a book called, Are There Witches Among Us? And I thought, that's weird and interesting. And that must be a satire, that must be some kind of a satire or something. So I'll ask for it to be called down from the stacks. And when I did that, I started looking at the book and I realized that, in fact, it was about witch fears, modern witch fears in West Germany. The book was published in the early 1950s, 1951, actually. So once I ran across this book and I began looking into a little bit the um, the background of the person who had written the book, a man named Johannes Kruse, who's also a character in my book, if you will, um, very interesting one, um, I began... And I had already noticed when I was writing Death in Berlin that there were all kinds of efflorescences of supernatural longings, if you will, in the immediate post-war years. I knew that already, but I didn't realize how many different permutations it seemed to have. And so once I start picking around a little bit and reading more, and I start running down a few more sources here and there, and then I found I began finding archival sources. 
um, police records and all sorts of other things um, and newspaper clippings, as you pointed out. Um, yeah, that's it kind of happened organically, just like a lot of research projects do, I guess. Yeah. And, and I get the impression that you you went on an excursion, if you will. This is an adventure. But the other places that you visited besides Stabi include Hereford, which is in the British zone of occupation, right? Munich, Freiburg. Um, did you go there on purpose? I mean, did you actually know what you were going to find there when you got deeper into the into the project? It's yeah, it's a great question. Um, I am always, you know, my 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 whole like way of working as a historian has always been. It seems to me somewhat idiosyncratic because when I hear other people talk about the way that they do research, I always think, oh, that's how you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Go to, to Copeland, stay there for eight, for eight months, be completely bored and then return. <laughs> that's right. right. And find, you know, the main cache of sources about the thing that you're interested in. But my things never work that way because yeah. I remember very well when I was writing my first book, I went into the, to the federal archives in Berlin, if you can imagine, in Lichterfeld. And I said, uh, I want to see all the sources that you have about death. I mean, what kind of question is that? You know? <laughs> Only Americans ask questions like that. <laughs> That's right. Only Americans go into huge archives for huge countries and ask these kind of crazy questions. So they all just looked at me like I was, you know, <laughs> like I seriously needed I needed mentorship or something. Um, but in any case, in in the, in this instance, so my first book was about Berlin. So at least, even though I was sort of traipsing around from archive to archive, they were all in one place, more or less. This one was different because I did have to go to a lot of different places, and sometimes I thought there would be something there, and sometimes I didn't know. Um, I was guided in part, and, and I, I would, and I would, I'd like to underscore this by an article that Florian Mildenberger wrote several years ago about Bruno Groning where he seems to have quite exhaustively uh, in a way that a German historian can do, who's, who's located in Germany, he seems to have exhaustively sought out almost every source that exists about Bruno Groning. So I was, I did have a kind of roadmap because of Florian Mildenberger's work, but the other stuff, the witchcraft stuff was a little bit more um, catch as catch can. And there are probably things that, that, exist out there in the world that I don't know about. Maybe somebody else will find them someday. Yeah. And let's talk about that a little bit, Monica, because yes, you have the biography of Gruning that could almost be a separate and I would say much more boring book. Um, (laughs) But what I think what leads you beyond the witch, the, the doctors, these wonder doctors into the world of witchcraft and accusations is, is equally fascinating because uh, my impression after reading this book was I, I said to myself, Stephen, you're so closed minded. Um, you're not understanding what's beneath the surfaces, causes beneath causes, as you as you put it um, a couple of times in the book. And, and I, I love the fact that you begin to include this world that would be the Natalie Zamon Davis world mm-hmm. in the period from 1949 to 1961 or, or 1949 to the death of Groening in 1950, in 1959, 49 to 59. So what, what, what leads you into this world of witches and, and maybe even a, a world of a different genre if we're talking about the supernatural? You, you, you switch in a really interesting way when you begin talking about witchcraft. 
Well, it's interesting. You know, it, I was people people at the time, in other words, contemporaries of the events that I describe in the book, often put groaning together with um, various other phenomena. So they put him together with, for example, the fact that there were communities in which people were accusing each other of witchcraft. And they put him together with um, the large number, and there was a large number um, in West Germany, of of apparitions of the Virgin Mary after the Second World War, uh, about which Michael O'Sullivan has written, um, for example. Um, I think what I started, so so putting these phenomena together um, was something that sort of grew out of the things I was reading that contemporaries were telling me about how they saw these things fitting together. But then there was another piece of it, which was, I, as I read more about, about anthropological theories of witchcraft, I began to realize that witchcraft, I mean, and this is the, you know, E.E. E. Evans Pritchard said this a hundred years ago, this is nothing new for people who study these, these matters, that witchcraft is a kind, acts as a kind of theodicy. Witchcraft mm-hmm. is an explanation for misfortune. So in a society where witchcraft is um, a ready to hand available cultural idiom for social conflict, if you experience a number of misfortunes, let's say your cow dies and then your child becomes ill and then, you know, there's an accident on your farm or there's a, um, there's a bad storm that destroys your, you know, that, that, knocks a tree over and it smashes into your house. If a series of misfortunes happen in a row in that way, one might start to ask the question, why is this happening to me? And that's when the idea of of a witch being behind one's misfortune can enter the frame. So causes behind causes is the idea that on the one hand, there are there are manifest causes of things. There are immediate causes of misfortune. For example, I became ill because I caught COVID or I, mm-hmm, the tree right. smashed my house because there was a wind. But then a cause behind a cause is another thing. That, that's the question that one asks when one says, why me? In other words, the implication of asking why me is why not them or why did this happen to me and not to someone else? So right. that's the theodicy aspect of witchcraft as a form of explanation. I'm not sure that exactly explains your question, but maybe that, that gets towards yeah. what you were asking. No, no, I, I think, and I think your book is, I mean, it's raising a lot of questions. So I, I'm not expecting you to answer every question that you raise. Um, but these ideas of guilt and responsibility and shame and pain. I mean, a really sort of a world of millions of people in pain. That's the impression that I get as you take us across this landscape. And in many ways, it it feels like you're switching into a different genre as a historian in order to do this. It's somewhere between German expressionism and Krakauer and Stephen King. I, I don't know. Um, do, do you actually, as a writer, when you were working through these sources and, and covering grunting, did, did you start to think about how, how to create a, a world of the supernatural? How did you think about this as, as a world of causes beneath causes and, and all the emotions that are there in post-war Germany? That's such a beautifully phrased question. I love the way you, I love the way you said that. Um, 
So one of the people have asked me why I decided to write a trade book as a scholar, because we all know, I mean, we can just be honest about that, that that's not always a, um, um, that's a, people, people who choose to write books that are aimed at a wider audience as scholars are often asked about their motivations for doing that. And I have to say that my own motivation had to do with both, in my opinion, the interest factor of the material, which I thought was significant. I thought this is something that I think more people than the few, you know, the handful of people who read my first book, um, there might be more people interested in this material, uh, I thought. But I also wanted to stretch myself a little bit as a writer. And I wanted to see, these are very the things that I write about in this book are very complicated things to write about. And you pointed out, and it took me a long time. I want to say that too. It took me a very long time to write this book. Yeah. Um, it, it was a very complicated book to write because first of all, I had to understand things that I was not accustomed to understanding. And I had to understand them well enough to, to be able to explain them to someone else without saying to them, read these 10 books and then you'll understand what I'm writing about here. Could, could you give us an example of what you mean? I mean, is it just the paranormal or exorcisms, magic? What is it? I mean, it's, 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 it's many of those things. I would say that just ex- understanding something about witchcraft as a form of explanation, as I was talking about a moment ago, is one of those things where I just mm-hmm. had to, in, in other words, I think our proclivity is to dismiss uh, ways of perceiving the world that we don't understand and particularly these forms of understanding the world that seem to us to be somehow untimely or out of step with the way that we assume people are supposed to understand the world. And uh-huh. there's a tendency because we don't understand how they function in so in the social world, because we don't understand them, we stick them all into one box, which we label the supernatural or we label it the occult or people argue about whether it's occult or esoteric. I've never had any time for these arguments. Uh-huh. I, I, to me, I am... An, an anthropologically minded historian, I am interested in the way that people construct a sense of reality for themselves. And that means looking at things that sometimes are um, unpleasant, frankly, for us to think about, or that we don't, um, that seem to us to be too far outside the bounds of what we accept to be rational thinking to be worthy of contemplation, but I think they're extremely worthy of contemplation. And I think, frankly, the um, completely flat-footed way in which our society has dealt with the QAnon phenomenon is a good example of why people need to think much harder about the kinds of phenomena that I describe in the book. Mm-hmm. Could could you could you give us an idea of how you structured your chapters? So I know you have, I think, 10 chapters and Mm -hmm. Cruz, whom you mentioned. I think Gruning must be in six or seven of the chapters. Um, So in in structuring a narrative that doesn't always move forward from um, the foundational or mythical foundational moment of of the Federal Republic, how did you decide to arrange um, the chapters and, and ultimately this tour of the landscape? Yeah. So in some ways, the sources drove the organization of the book. Um. Groning, there is a massive archive about Bruno Groning, and it's spread out over many different um, locations in in the former West Germany, but it's massive. 
because he was such a, a figure of such tremendous curiosity um, for so many people at the time and since, actually. I mean, I think he's actually more famous probably globally now than he was then. Um, but so in some ways, Groening appears on the scene in 1949, which, as you know, and as many listeners will know, uh, was he, he appears on the scene you know, just a few months before the Federal Republic of Germany is officially founded. And he rises to tremendous fame over the, the course of 1949 and into 1950. And then he's the subject of a series of trials. And he's kind of put out of commission uh, and told by his lawyers, you need to stop <laughs> um, encouraging these huge crowds to gather around you. You can meet yeah. with people, but you can only meet with them um, in small groups, and you can't call what you're doing healing because you're, they're going to get you for violating what was called the the healing practitioner's law, which was a kind right. of lay healer I, law. And, and back to the Nazi era, correct? I mean, what that was exactly. a law from the from the Third Reich. That's right. That's exactly right. So there's a huge because of all of that, because of his fame, because of his because of the court cases against him. There's a huge volume of material about Groening in the early say 1949, 1950, 1951. And then there's a bunch again towards the end when he's put on trial again in this, in this instance for, um, uh, because um, what was said was that a, a young woman who, who he had treated, who, whom he had met, who had had tuberculosis, had suspended medical treatment after meeting with him. And so he was put on trial for, um, I can't remember what the word is in English. Um, um, uh, um, manslaughter, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, so the fact that the book takes a certain shape has to do with the volume of sources, the the kind of storyline that is set up by Groening's career in the 1950s, but also by the fact that in the midst of this, so when when Groening sort of when his his fame sort of ebbs at a certain moment because he's told to stop doing what he's doing. And just about this time, there's a tremendous flowering of Marian apparitions, of apparitions of the Virgin Mary. And then there are these, there's this sort of group of exorcisms that I found out about, um, kind of prayer cults that were helping people exorcise demons. And then I found out about witch, about the witches. And that all sort of starts to emerge in, in, national, in national terms, where it's in not printed you know, stories in national magazines and in trans-regional newspapers around 1950, 1951. So the narrative structure of the book is really in a certain way, um, is, is just based on the way that the archival record right. unfolds, if you yeah, will. Yeah, I, I, and, I, and I found it interesting because it's, you know, you must have been faced with choices. Do I start with the court trial? Do I end with the court trial? Um, how to incorporate these miracles and, and, and also... I would ask as, a, as an next question, as a kind of follow-up question, how to incorporate the voices and the agency of the millions of people who believe in the healing powers of, of someone like Eberling or Gröning? I mean, how do you get past the media filter, I guess? Or, or how do you get past the um, newspaper stories, almost like lurid sensationalist media stories about Gröning at this moment of fame? And then toward the end, how they you know begin to turn on him when he's on trial for negligent homicide. It, right. You're covering. I mean, you're covering a cultural history, obviously, but you've got. You have to somehow get into the voices of the millions of people who believe in 
him and and are not accepting the official line that he's a quack or a charlatan or something else. How how do you how do you do that? Yeah, so there's there's two things I would say, I guess. The first thing is that um I try to whenever I can whenever I can find those voices, um, I try to let us let let the reader hear them. So for example, lots of people wrote to Groening, wrote him letters. Um, or they wrote to officials hoping that the officials would help them organize a meeting with Groening. This happened on many occasions, and there are many letters in the archives where you can read people's individual stories, people's, um, as you mentioned earlier, and you're exactly right, people tell stories of their individual experiences of pain and suffering and their children suffering. And so that's one way. Another way is that I try to, um, and again, this has to do with my sort of anthropologically oriented way of thinking about history, I don't take a, a stance about groaning myself. I'm not, I'm actually not interested in whether or not medical mm-hmm. science thinks that Bruno Groening was actually whatever that would mean curing people. If people tell me in the sources that they were cured of something, then I take that seriously. And that's in my book. Yeah. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing I had, there was another point I wanted to make and now I can't remember exactly what it was, but I hope that's at least part yeah, of Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it was really about the millions of people who are attracted to him because there, there's always this focus, as you say, very vividly on his own morality and his personal habits and the fact that he's a coffee drinker and he right. is a carouser and a womanizer and all these other things. And he begins to attract these, you know, sort of like a marketing team. They're, it's a, an entourage of, That's right. of people who become his managers and, and they're almost as interesting as grunting himself. I I'd, I'd have to say. Um, so it, it was a question really about the voices of, of the people who were attracted to his charisma. And, um, I was just and wondering, they really a, they, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was finished. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. I think, I think what you're hitting on is very important. And I think that this was part of what I, this was my kind of the second part of what I wanted to say earlier that I remembered in the course of, of hearing your, Um, You recapitulate some of your own thoughts. I mean, one of the things that I think is very important for people to understand about Bruno Groening and his and the people who were who were attracted to him is that they were a very, a tremendously varied group of people. So they seem to have come from almost every walk of life. There were, uh, you know, um, people in 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 every sort of class stratum, um, men and women, uh, young people and older people. people from many different walks of life in terms of profession or in terms of the kinds of work that they did. Um, and he, at a, you know, at a certain point was being touted in public by some very prominent public figures. So that's a piece of the story too, is I think that there's a tendency, this is, would certainly be true, I think, in, in, in contemporary American life, to assume that we know who, what kind of people believe certain kinds of things. And I don't think that that mm-hmm. kind of way of starting, that if you get off on that footing in your analysis, you're missing a whole lot. Because the people yeah. who were, as you put it very correctly, who were, who were brought into Groening's orbit because of his tremendous personal charisma, which is, it's undeniable, it comes through the sources in every conceivable way. Um, they were truly a varied group. And so, um, and some of them had very bad intentions. 
And some of them had very good intentions. And I think Groening himself is actually a very complicated figure. I don't think that he had intentions that can be sort of summarized in a sentence. Um, yeah. I think I think he genuinely believed that he was bringing his a gift that he had been given from God to people who needed it. And, you know, that had some consequences that were not necessarily uh, that, that were unfortunate in some cases. But I, I right. do actually think that his his intentions were quite positive, if you will. And do you do you find that any of these wonder doctors have doctrines are or is their healing power a matter of being present, as you say? Because yeah. I, I mean, obviously during the Adnauer era, there's so many silences and even Groening himself doesn't want to talk history. People, you know, almost like reflexively don't want to refer back to who did what before 1945. So maybe that's part of his appeal or how do you read that? I do think that he, yes, it's right. Groening doesn't want to talk about history. He he seems, in my opinion, to allude to history in certain ways. And I write about this. And I write about how the things, these kind of strangely aphoristic things that he would say that seem to gesture backward in time, how these aphoristic things might have been perceived by an audience in 1950, 1951, 1952. So I try to, I try to get into that a little bit. Um, and I say in the book that silence can sometimes be a form of, 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 of evidence when people are demonstrably not saying something that you can see. Um, they, they, you know, that they know what they're saying without saying it. I mean, I'd, I would liken it to what we, what we now refer to as a dog whistle. Mm. Um, you don't have to say something directly for everyone around you to know what you're talking about. At a certain point, Groening himself was, um, was psychoanalyzed, not in person, but on the basis of documents by Alexander Mitchell, a very famous psychoanalyst and, and, and public figure in, in post-war Germany. And, you know, Mitchell, talked about, um, the way that, um, the way that Groening sort of, uh, the way that Groening sort of, wor- um, what am I trying to say? He, Mitterlich believed, um, that Groening was a kind of Hitler 2.0 and he was very alarmed by him and, and, and Groening upset Mitterlich and filled him with a certain amount of dread. And yeah. I think that part of that, what's interesting in reading the documents that, Mitterlich wrote about Groening is how even Mitterlich himself didn't say things in, in so many words, but it's very clear what Mitterlich is saying when he's talking about Groening. He doesn't call him Hitler 2.0, but it's clear right. that that's what he thought about him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 And, and I, I mean, I think Groening obviously is, is like a, the dominant figure, but I want you to talk about some of the other ones as well. Um, so what, I mean, what happens then with, with Eberling and what happens with Cruz? So you, you mentioned them before. Cruz has a crusade. You have this, this wonderful chapter. I think it's a brilliant chapter actually about Cruz's crusade. Um, and, and what does this suggest about the belief in the supernatural across German society in the 50s? So, well, thank you very much. I, that actually is in many ways my favorite chapter in the book, the chapter about Johann Kruse, who, you know, Kruse is a fascinating human being all by himself. He was a man who um, grew up in a rural part of northern Germany and knew about the um, 
the culture of wit- witchcraft belief and witchcraft accusation. He was well aware of it. He was not himself a, pract- or a, a participant in that culture, but he knew about it. And he knew that it could be what a socially pernicious thing it could be for an individual in a community, particularly in a, in a community where everyone knew everyone else, to be accused of witchcraft was a terribly... Uh, was a, a terribly um, socially alienating uh, um, thing to have happen to you. And what I write about in that chapter is the way that Cruz from the 1920s had been sort of evangelizing about the problem of witchcraft belief and the ways that it, um, the kinds of, of, of ill effects that it had on, on social groupings, on, on communities. So in that chapter, I kind of try to explain how he had been this sort of prescient figure for many years. He had seen the way that um, a neighbor could be accused and then become socially ostracized by the group and the kinds of, this could have terrible effects on people's health. It certainly affected their livelihoods if they, if their neighbors got the impression that they were, you know, yeah, yeah that they were bad people. And so I try to explain, I mean, for me, Cruz is a figure both of sort of just he's an interesting figure all on its on his own but the fact that he was a person who could see that this tendency to accuse someone when something went wrong was a, an act a deeper tendency he perceived it as a deeper tendency in german culture and he linked it actually to anti-semitism yeah he thought that the two things yeah. were quite similar actually yeah and uh, could you could you explain the the books and from that chapter, especially so that the sixth and seventh books of Moses and uh, in some of the societies that he was involved in, because he was a school teacher from what I understand. Right. He was a school teacher and a lifelong social Democrat and uh, not a supporter of the Nazis. Somebody who, you know, was um, um, someone who had been uh, moved around from job to job throughout the, throughout the third Reich, because in his own words, he just, didn't have enough enthusiasm for the sorts of things that he was expected to do as a teacher in that time. Um, you know, I, I, and what he means by that exactly, um, it's not exactly clear, but he, he didn't show enough enthusiasm for Hitler. Let's just put it that way. And so he gets yeah. moved around a lot. And he, as I said, he's, he had this particular concern about, um, witchcraft beliefs and their pernicious social effects but he was also more concerned. He was also concerned in a more general sense with the problem, as he saw it, of superstition. So, and superstition to a guy like Johann Kruse, who was very much a sort of he, um, uh, uh, kind of follower of the Enlightenment, if you will. He and and saw himself as a sort of um, as a person who whose job it was, or part of his yeah. sort of mission in life was to 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 help people, other people, understand how how awful a thing superstition was and how it could um, affect society um, in, in negative ways. And yes, he, he becomes involved in a, norm, in a number of organizations that, uh, that evangelize on that same point. Um, at a certain point, he took to court the publishers of a, um, of a very famous magic book, which is called The Sixth and Seventh Books of Moses, which has a long history uh, but it had it had been published in a new edition in the immediate post-war era, and he took them to court. He took the, the publishers to court um, on on various charges, um, and you know, trying to stop this book from being published, which he felt 
not only contributed to superstitious tendencies among his fellow citizens, but also contributed to the sort of culture of witchcraft fears. So he was sort of an all-purpose activist um, Mm -hmm. in in that period of time. And he kind of gives us a counterweight to see, um, so we can see sort of through the eyes of people who are surrounding Groening, um, if you will, what that side of the coin looks like. And then and then Johann Kruse gives us a very different take on the same sorts of events that were unfolding at that time. Yeah. And do you see, I mean, you see him almost like a Voltaire figure. I mean, is, is he you know, representing this rationalism of German society? Because there are so many other forces, you know, which are, I wouldn't just say irrational, but they're searching for alternative modes of healing and explanatory processes. So, I mean, the court system itself has to be kind of rational, or, or how, how do you read that toward the end? There are trials in your last chapters, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think, I do think that, I do certainly think that that um, that Cruza saw himself as an enlightener, you know, that, that he saw himself in that vein of a person who wants to bring the light of science and rationality to um, a benighted swath of the population who apparently, um, you know, are just, um, their, their minds are obfuscated by, by superstition or whatever. Um, but I guess one of the things that I thought was really interesting was how the courts actually respond to figures like Groening and figures like Valdemar Aberling and, um, the way that these, the way that the, you know, because Aberling himself, uh, another of the of the healer figures and and uh, sort of a, a man who gets wound up in a witchcraft accusation situation, um, uh, who 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 I describe at some length in the book. He also ends up going on trial. Um, usually, these usually people are try in. Let's see if I can. I don't know if I can encapsulate both of these guys in one sort of breath, but they they're usually taken to court for violating this lay healer law. And then there may be other charges brought at the same time. If, if the, if the um, prosecutors think they can make them stick. Um, But one of the things I thought was really interesting was that there, there's a certain um, understanding. I'm trying to think of the right way to put it. There's a way that in the court documents, you can see how uh, the, judges and and other members of the sort of, you know, people who were involved in these trials, um, I wouldn't say that they have necessarily a sympathy for the people who are on trial, but there is an understanding that these figures are somehow a part of the cultural landscape, I would say. Yeah. That they... It's not an it's not an entirely alien thing to the court to hear these kinds of cases. Um, what I'm saying is these, the phenomena that I describe in the book do not erupt in Germany in 1945. They are cultural tendencies, I would say, that existed long before the war was over, but that can get or did get uh, sort of reignited in various ways after the war, I would say, because of the particular social conditions that pertained then. So, right one of the things that I think is interesting just to wrap up is that when some of these cases go to trial, um, it's clear that it's clear from reading the case files that the judges are not, it's not a completely unknown thing to them to see cases like these. 
Yeah. And I, I see the judges as also part of a world of place because mm-hmm. trials have to take place. I mean, they're, they're in many of these areas where Gröning has visited or where, um, where Eberling has visited. So they, the judges themselves, and for that matter, the academics <laughs> belong to those communities. Um, and, and, you know, so you have this topography, which takes us um, into parts of West Germany, where I think so much more can be, can be done. And, and that's really my next question for you as a cultural historian. So um, you incorporate a lot of secondary literature as well. What, what kind of things would you like to see cultural historians and cultural anthropologists do in reconfiguring the moment, let's say, where um, at least stereotypically you have this transition to liberal democracy or a consumer society or all of these other things that, that have been challenged? Oh, yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I, I, I think that there's a great deal more to be known about this kind of social psychological landscape. And one of the things that I'm interested in, in general, I would say, is how we can write about the psychology of societies. I mean, you know, people tried that earlier. You know, there was an earlier, I've actually been thinking about trying to write something about this. I mean, there was the era of psychohistory, right? When people, you know, like Eric Erickson wrote Young Man Luther or, you know, and and trying to extrapolate from a single biography a much bigger sort of um, picture of social psychology. And, and, and that, that method strikes us now as quite problematic, of course, yeah. for obvious reasons. But I still think that we need some more sophisticated tools to understand um, the thinking of societies, the ways that societies think. And I think that's the promise of cultural history. And I think that finding ways into, um, you know, the patterns of of the patterns of culture, finding ways into the the landscape of, of, of thinking in societies is extremely, that's extremely important work, I think. I think that we would be much better served in our current moment in the United States if we understood our own culture better. I don't think that we actually think about it that much. Or I try to think about it, but I can't really think about it because I'm inside of it. I wish that someone outside of it would look at it and say, you know, this is what I see happening. Because I think yeah. that's, that can be very powerful. And that's the historian's gaze on the past, is that there are patterns of behavior, of belief, that were that are not available to consciousness necessarily, to the person living in them. But later, decades later, a historian can look back and say, I see these patterns and I want to try to understand what they mean. Right. So I think that's what I would say. Yeah, and, That's and kind would, of my quest. Yeah, no, I, I, I share that quest. And, and I actually share that quest right up to the present, and you mentioned QAnon. Um, I, I, you know, I don't see the phrase magical thinking in your book, but I know that you've been asked about this. So you actually, I think, answered the question in part when you said you, you don't want to come to truth terms with, with Gröning. Um, I'm wondering about Vergangenheitsbewältigung because, again, you know, like as an American living in the United States right now, I don't see any of this coming to terms with the past. And it's one thing I deeply admire about German society um, eventually, and not at this moment in 1959, 
But what sort of things, judging from your book and, and being a cultural critic, would you like to see happen? I, I mean, I, this is a hard question about the lessons of the German past, and I, I don't want to quite put it that way. But there definitely is a lesson from your book, and I wonder if you could if you could articulate some of that. I mean, one thing I might say, and when you say lesson, you mean for us now in the United States, for well, example. In the United States, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, there are plenty of con artists and tricksters and imposters, <laughs> and we know who they are, <laughs> yes. right? But we also need different tools in order to understand their popularity and how in a moment in time where there is such cultural malaise, similar to your book in the 50s. So, um how to come to terms with that kind of malaise or, or tricksterdom or rumor milldom. That's really my question. Yeah, no, I get it. That's, and that's a great question. And I think about that all the time. And I, I have to say that when I was writing this book, it often, it often appeared to me that um, I was somehow living through something that was very similar to what I, what I was seeing, you know, decades ago in, in West Germany. What I would say is that, you know, qu- questions about what is true and what isn't and who's a charlatan and who isn't and who's leading whom astray and et cetera. I mean, one thing I would say about our current moment is I, one thing I'm struck by about, about our, our society that really um, gr- is very grievous to me, actually, is I feel that there's a strong um, disinterest in the truth. Um, and I don't think that that lack of interest, I should have said disinterest, I should have said lack of interest, excuse me, lack of interest in the truth is something that is uh, can be located on one end of the political spectrum, quite, quite frankly. I think there's a general lack of interest in the truth. I think that we have, um, we've, we've allowed the institutions of our country, we've allowed the, um, the frameworks um, in which we operate to become corrupted beyond anything that I think we could have imagined when we were younger. And that's not to say there hasn't always been corruption in American society. Of course there has. It doesn't mean that there haven't always been, been flawed institutions. And it doesn't mean that there hasn't, that there haven't been systemic problems in the past, but these things are coming to a head in a moment now that they seem almost to have a logic or a, a runaway logic of their own. And I think that if we could figure out a way to talk to each other in complete honesty, without um, with maturity, without um, needing to defend ourselves, um, and just listen to what other people are telling us about the way things are for them, if we could listen to that for a minute, I think... I mean, I'm probably saying something that's kind of unpopular in a certain way because nobody wants to hear this now. Nobody wants to right. hear how we want to listen, how we need to listen to each other. And I understand that because I feel that way myself. And yet, I am struck by um, this profound sense of malaise, as you put it, and you're exactly right, and where it is going. Because, um, as we know very well as historians, it could go to a place that that none of us really want to imagine, I don't think. And yeah. so I, yeah. I, I, in, it's in that light that I say that honesty is required. But the other, the other problem of course, is that what, what does honesty mean now? If, if there's a significant portion of the population who will not accept the outcome of the election, what are we supposed to do about that? How can we be honest? I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
Or for that matter, as you mentioned in your introduction, what do you do with the portion of the population that would forget the immediate past? And this covers all parts of the political spectrum. Let's just forget it and build neon strips and malls um, and, and forget the social harm. And really, I mean, forget this particular moment in, in the Third Reich. Uh, I think there's a different way of rereading the 1950s, and certainly there's a different way of rereading the recent past. And, and that's, that's really my last question for you, Monica, um, in thinking about the social harm mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's done. So uh, as a German historian, I guess this is really a, love, a, a question about degree do you see harm done by people like Gröning or Gröning as Hitler 2.0, or do you see him as somehow curative? Because if you study the diverse medical landscape and the history of medicine, people are now much more accepting of homeopathic cures. And um, so what's, what's the amount of harm done by uh, these witch doctors in this moment really wonder doctors in the moment of witchcraft in the 1950s? I think that Bruno Gröning was, had a quite salubrious effect in some ways on many people. I mean, that's quite clear and it's documented in the sources. Many, many, many people in the sources talk about the way that he made them feel better. And I take that very seriously. And I, I am, you know, I consider myself to be a person who's quite open about a lot of different things. And I would never discount um, the, the kind of effect that he had for a lot of people. I mean, I think in some ways you get the impression almost that he met with people who were in pain and then they didn't feel pain anymore and they could go back to their lives. And somehow that, that charisma, Mm -hmm. as you, as you put it earlier, and you're exactly right, that, that, changed something for them. They felt different from the way they had felt before. That's not insignificant, I don't think. Of course, it's also problematic when people are um, claiming to or, 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 or suggesting to people that they can cure something like tuberculosis by, by sitting sure. next to you and holding your hand. Right. Okay, Asthma, that's a problem. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. That is a problem. Um, but I guess what I would say is that he, I think his effect in some ways you know, while ambiguous, I think probably for a lot of people was, um, was quite positive. And I would also say that, you know, throughout the world now, he has many followers, even today. I mean, there are websites uh, about him in dozens of languages. And yeah, five, five part documentary <laughs> about him, which I see has been watched by 1.3 million people. Yeah. No, it's amazing. It is amazing. And even here in my own, you know, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, two hours to the east is Asheville, North Carolina. And and recently there was a Bruno Groening discussion in Asheville, North Carolina. I saw it by accident somewhere on the internet. So in any case, I, you know, I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know, I don't think that, I don't think that Groening was Hitler 2.0. I don't think that that was an accurate assessment um, uh, on Mitrelik's part. But of course, I'm saying that many years hence, mm-hmm. and maybe the kinds of the things that made the hairs on the back of his neck stand up mm-hmm. don't have that effect on me, right? Right. But I, and I'm sympathetic to the way that he was seeing the responses of people 
to this figure, and he's thinking just a couple of years ago, I remember these same kinds of responses. So I understand that. Um, But I do think that he had some, you know, I think there were people for whom he had uh, a real positive healing effect. Yeah. Well, uh, since we're almost out of time, um, Monica, I, I don't want I don't want to let you get away without asking you about your new work in cultural history. So could you talk about your current research and your current projects and interests? I I know our listeners will want to know what you're writing next. I have so many different things that I'm kind of working on. I mean, one thing I'm working on in a serious way is a book that, that sort of looks at a kind of um, a book about the the theme of culture in German, in modern German history. Um, which is really, really interesting to work on. And I've, I've taught a class called Culture in German History for the last couple of years, sort of preparing, thinking about what kinds of texts I want to use and images I want to use in this book. Um, but I'm also thinking about, I was supposed to go last summer to the Hans Falada archive, uh, and because I want to write a book about Hans Falada, the novelist. And I don't know exactly what this book will consist of, but I want to place Falada in the stream of history and write about him as a historical figure, not a, not in a biographical sense, but as a person living in daily life and experiencing things in daily life and then translating these things into books that for my, for my way of thinking are some of the best ways to understand German history in the 1930s and forties. Um, so that's another thing I'm interested in. I'm also interested possibly in writing something about Rudolf Steiner and, um, mm. Wow. I have a lot of, you know, right. I think I, I think I could write something interesting about Rudolf Steiner. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that would be, but I think it's, I think it's interesting that this figure, you know, helped to launch uh, both an empire of of schools and biodynamic agriculture, and yeah. that's just curious. I mean, how yeah, does yeah. that happen? I'd read so, that. Yes. <laughs> oh, you would? Okay, good. <laughs> I, I would. Definitely. You have an audience of one and many more. I would definitely read that if we ever get back to archives again. Right. You read that. Um, and you have it. So the general cultural history that you're working on, is is that really all the way back to Hochkultur or covering the 18th century to the present? I mean, it's going to start somewhere in the in the territory of Herder, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. at least temporarily speaking, and and Herder will certainly make an appearance in the book. Um, but but yes, that's the idea: is to sort of write something about manifestations of culture, ideas about culture, and culture as a sort of defining. Uh, I don't know um, um, the water that people swim in. I want to look at culture from a, a lot of different perspectives, um, both both an anthropological perspective and also a kind of intellectual history perspective and social history perspective. So, um, yeah. 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 And, and psycho history perspective too. I, I think you're absolutely right about this. We need to bring back sublimation and displacement and talk about these moments because as you say, there are these coded languages and cultural idioms and um, sometimes not talking about things is as important as talking about things, the silences that are there. Um, I think so too. Yeah. So we, we are at the end and I want to thank you, Monica Black for joining us today on new books network. Monica Black's book is called a demon haunted land, Witches, wonder doctors and the ghosts of the past in post-world war II Germany. This was published by Metropolitan Books and Henry Holt in 2020. 
I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and thank you so much, um, Monica, for joining us on the New Books Network podcast today. Thank you, Stephen. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.